one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today on Truth and Movies, do you want to build a sequel? Disney does. It's Frozen 2. I'm going with you. Anna? No. Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart, and saved you from my ex-boyfriend, so, you know, I'm coming. Then it's the hand-drawn French animation, I lost my body. Une fois que t'as dribblé le destin, tu fais quoi? And in Film Club, it's Ken Russell's rock operatic head trip, Tommy. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from Campbell A. Campbell. Hello. Welcome back, Cam, and Caitlin Quinlan. Hello. How are you both doing this morning? Very good, thank you. Um, I'd never realised how alliterative like all of our names sound. <laughs> <laughs> it should go quite nicely. Yeah, exactly. We're already off to such a great start and we should keep this momentum going with some Disney magic. Up first this week is Frozen 2. This follow-up to the Oscar-winning box office smash answers the question, why was Elsa born with magical powers? The answer is calling her and threatening her kingdom. And together with Anna, Kristoff, Olaf and Sven, she sets out on a dangerous but remarkable journey. The kingdom is not safe. Find who is calling to you. They may have answers. I'm going with you. Anna? No. Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart and saved you from my ex-boyfriend. So, you know, I'm coming. Frozen 2 there. So, Caitlin, this is coming a good five or six years after the first Frozen broke box office records for animation at the box office, etc. Are we excited for a sequel? I mean, uh, I think with Disney sequels these days, it's always a bit of a kind of, you know, they're just pumping out the corporate clockwork machine again. But I, I think Frozen, the first Frozen film had a lot going for it. It was obviously a mass hit. The songs, you know, have been stuck in people's heads for the duration of, you know, this gap between the films. So I was quite excited to see where this film was going to go. And I thought the trailer actually had sort of put together quite a promising view of the film. So, yeah, I was I was quite excited, I will say. What was, what was that promise then in the trailer? Did the film bear I, it out? I think the thing about this film is that there's actually just quite a lot of grandeur to it. And there's quite a lot of musical sequences that, I don't know, if they're ever going to match up to Let It Go, which obviously, you know, kind of took the world by storm. But there are some big musical numbers in this. And I think the trailer really did a good job of kind of capturing that, the the kind of power of those. So there's a lot of visual, yeah, grandeur and just like excess that's, I think, done quite nicely in the film. Like a lot of the animation is really nice around those scenes. So yeah, the trailer, I think, promised a lot of that kind of 
beauty and like this very sparkly film, I think. I think one thing that you can definitely say about this film is that it shows off animation yes. standards as high as they are today. Mm-hmm. You realise even between this and the previous film that it's gone on leaps and bounds and they really do try to find another let it go style banger don't yeah they? i think there's two, like twice, yeah. two that they try and yeah i was gonna say that it's like they're trying to balance out the fact that the first frozen forgot it was a musical mm-hmm. after i think maybe after let it go they just kind yep. of stopped trying to talk it was like the film they realized that like there's not really any topping it so let's just kind of like tail off from here and then here it's just they're trying to match it with this quantity of tracks that consistently yeah. not one but two um Elsa self-actualization anthems and things like these musical pastiches from Jonathan Groff, which Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed, but I thought sort of brought the movie to a grinding standstill. If we're talking about the same number, the the way it's directed is almost like an 80s, 90s power ballad music video pastiche, which almost for me, I thought what what I thought the first film did really well was that it was its own thing. It wasn't, it was sort of of parodying, but also very much played as a fantasy fairy tale adventure. That's the scene there which felt like it was from Shrek. I was was literally (laughs) just about to say that. I thought it was very funny in the moment, but it it felt really strange and a little more cynical which is maybe not the vibe you want from a film with the number two in the title. Mm-hmm. It just made it feel like they were saying, oh, we know what audiences want. And things like the Olaf recaps of the first film and sort of the sly winking at things like that started to grate on me a little bit. It feels like there's like an inevitability to all of those kind of moments in these sequels now because yeah. I think, you know, they knew that there was a certain checklist I think that they had to tick with this film considering how successful the first one was and you know there's expectations that people have so I kind of see it as like those two forces battling against each other like we need to make a film that everyone's going to love but we also need to acknowledge that there is probably some things we can poke fun at or that we should try and you know make a bit sort of more tongue-in-cheek I don't know to me it seemed like they were kind of battling those two those two angles sort of like proving that they're like self-aware of yeah and I suppose like you were saying with the Jonathan Groff song as fun as it is maybe it could have been done with being a little bit more just straightforwardly earnest Mm -hmm. which is a strange thing to say about a Disney movie (laughs) I was very interested in the sort of narratives tack about how it was Elsa versus colonialism, yeah. <laughs> which was a really <laughs> I was kind of, I thought it was kind of refreshing in its sort of matching the f- subversions of traditional fantasy tales of the first. So, like in the first film, there's like a handsome prince who whisks um, Kristen Bell's Anna <laughs> away, <laughs> um, and it turns out that he's awful. And similarly, in this, there are some things about their kingdom's history that aren't so sparkly but it sort of I feel like it ultimately backs down Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. any real consequences which is kind of a problem with the first considering that it's rather than critiquing the sort of Disney's traditional system of Princess Mary's beautiful prince it sort of just gives them an easy sort of individualized target and I feel like it does a very it creates a very similar problem here and sort of goes through with the expected Everything worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Power of love. It is interesting, isn't it? So they, they, they bring in the two massive themes into this film. One is a sort of Greta Thunberg era <laughs> environmental message about this mysterious magical forest. Very Mononoke. Well, exactly. Very <laughs> Studio Ghibli, really. Although <laughs> Disney have always had problems trying to capture that spirit in their films, haven't they? But then also this sense of post-colonial, the history of imperialism, looking back through the generations of the kingdom and their relationship with the land, as well as this story of 
Elsa trying to find the true source of her powers. And it does pull its punches, I think, mm. whilst bringing up some really fascinating themes. There's a, a great article that went up online this week by So Mayer, the critic. I was, yeah, going to quote this on, as well. It's on the great. Sight & Sound yeah. website, which really pulls those themes apart and looks at them through the lens of what it's trying to tell kids now and mm. trying to undo the thinking of these yeah, fairy yeah. tales for, for generations. I don't think the film goes as far as it could with them. Yeah, it sort of just eases off the throttle at maybe the most crucial moment, mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> where there's sort of all of this symbolism that it's been like building up it's kind of like this whoa cowboy sort of thing and just completely like backs down I think it's always the case with like you know mega corporate Disney approach to a film that there's gonna always have to be a limit to what Mm. they can actually like the message they can actually send and as much as not you know there's one sort of moment towards the end where you think like Wow, this film's actually really going to do something quite big here. It's always quite radical. Yeah, but it, but it inevitably doesn't. But I do think that I was reading in the article that Michael just mentioned. There's some really interesting things about how in this film, you know, it seems that they actually tried to correct some of the mistakes that they made within the first one in mm-hmm. terms of like culturally appropriating traditions of like the Sami region in mm-hmm. in like Nordic countries. So I think they've taken a similar approach to what they did with the film Moana and tried to incorporate the kind of traditions and teachings and the knowledge of the people that they're actually telling the story about into the, you know, the making of the film. So it's interesting that that's come into this one as well, that they're trying to maybe make this actually have more of a political core. Mm-hmm. But yeah, obviously it kind of gets swamped by the, the Disney machine, unfortunately, it does feel like a very reactive movie like the the last notes feel like someone made a note somewhere in production just being like hmm I don't know about this and then the rest seems like they are trying to correct a lot not that that's inherently a problem but it feels very um, self-conscious in that way Mm -hmm. this is a completely unrelated tangent but whenever someone invoked the um, different elemental spirits in my mind instantly just went to Avatar The Last Airbender (laughs) just like the intro with the fire earth water (laughs) exactly it's a funny thing for them to do they just give Elsa more powers throughout throughout this film yeah Yeah, but it leads to some of the prettiest stuff I think I think some of it's gorgeous I'm not particularly fond of the sort of plasticky textures of all the characters but I think when the film sort of pulls back and when it's like observing the landscapes they've created it looks amazing and or when it goes more into the abstract like Elsa reaches a certain magical location and Mm. the way her powers sort of interact with Mm. this world is amazing just this black background Mm. and all of these very intricate patterns which feel like they're recalling sort of old Disney animation a lot about like Fantasia and things like that we were kind of that some of that stuff's really really beautiful and it's just refreshing to see and takes you out of as you say that like plasticky world of the kind of all these characters are are so made to be made into dolls you know that's like the whole kind of the visuals of them Um, but all the landscapes and the scenery and the forest and the sort of as I say like the sparkle of it is I think done really really nicely so yeah visually stunning but what scores would you give this Caitlin so in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect I think as I say I was you know moderately excited I'd say for this I think maybe a three in anticipation I kind of had the expectation that this probably wasn't going to blow my mind or change the world but yeah I was quite excited to see it so maybe a three Mm -hmm. for anticipation I enjoyed watching this film. I would give it a four. Admittedly, I'm probably a bit of a sucker for like a key change and a very cute little Pokemon type creature that joins, you know, Elsa's side. The fire spirit is really adorable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I think there was a lot to it that I enjoyed the parts of the animation, um, the story kind of taking a different turn. So yeah, I'd say a four. And then in retrospect, as we've said, like a lot of the kind of path that it could go down it doesn't necessarily go that far. So maybe I'd be thinking, looking back on it, wishing that it had actually taken those extra steps. Maybe a three. Yeah, looking back okay. now. Campbell. 
I think I trend a bit lower because I wasn't a huge Frozen enthusiast in the first place. Um, I sort of forgot this was happening. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> the film was coming out until uh, very sort of close to actually watching it. I think I'd probably go with a two in anticipation because I think it's one of the lower Disney efforts as good as, or as catchy as some of the songs were. Again, in, in terms of actual enjoyment, I'd say a three. A lot of the craft was very solid, even though I didn't love all of it and I sort of yeah, similarly had a problem with its sort of non-committal nature to its themes and this sort of strange cynical undercurrent that was kind of just underneath it and also I just despise everything with Olaf the snowman I'm sorry <laughs> it doesn't work for you at all no I hate him <laughs> I, was, I, I only wish ill on <laughs> animated Josh Gad. There we go. Um, in retrospect to two, for the same reasons about I think my opinion on that sort of mm-hmm. holds. I'd say threes across the board for me. Parents have been on the country are going to be subjected to this film over <laughs> and over again and I'm sure it'll be, it's perfectly watchable and fine. Yeah. It could have gone a bit further. There's some of that wisdom missing that you'd find in something like Studio Ghibli or even Pixar or yeah. even mm-hmm. other Disney films, you mentioned Moana, that was yeah. built from the ground up as a celebration of Polynesian culture yes, and yeah, what they yeah. have here is a bit of a hedge. So perhaps not the quality that you'd want, but it's going to be Disney's sixth billion dollar grossing film oh, this yeah, year, probably. It's going to be, so be, be huge. It's, it's going to deliver money. on the corporate side. Yes. It's going to print money, and I'm probably going to listen to the Jonathan Groff song again as much as I was critiquing it here. Yeah. <laughs> Future karaoke song, maybe. Yeah. For you. I think so. I'm such a mark for something, something like this, and I hate it. <laughs> anyway, that was Frozen 2. Up next, we're sticking with animation for I Lost My Body. In a Parisian laboratory, a severed hand escapes its unhappy fate and sets out to reconnect with its body. During a hair-raising escapade across the city, the hand fends off pigeons and rats alike to reunite with pizza boy Naufel. Its memories of Naufel and his love for librarian Gabrielle may provide answers about what caused the hand's separation and a poetic backdrop for a possible reunion between the three. Une fois que t'as dribblé le destin, tu fais quoi so this is a French language film. Let's dive straight in. Cam, can you give a bit of background for this film? Um, so it's based on, I think, a short story by the screenwriter who was also the screenwriter of Amelie, mm-hmm. whose name I can't remember right now, directed by Jeremy Clapin. Uh, we've already made a bunch of one-hand Clapin jokes, so yeah. we'll just leave that. But yeah, it sort of takes on this sort of quasi-romantic tone in how it's sort of uses its visual language to portray this longing between the hand and its former partner, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And it sort of creates these parallel narratives with the flashback and the hand's progression back to Naufel and Naufel's sort of tentative romance with Gabrielle. It's got a problematic element, I think. (laughs) A very European element, I'd probably say. Yeah. Could Could you explain what that is, maybe? Well, he delivers a pizza to Gabrielle and falls in love with her via intercom and... One of those kind of situations where he just walks off and he just like doesn't get her number or anything. Attempts to call her in the yellow pages and his actions are interrupted. And it basically, it's all of these almost farcical circumstances that eventually leads him into pretending he's someone else and following her home to her uncle's workshop where he then gets a job and mm-hmm. continues to be silent about the nature of how they've actually met before. He's sort of presented in this very harmless way. And like you said, it sort of feels very European so it sort of dulls the insidiousness mm-hmm. of it, but it's still weird. <laughs> <laughs> to have that as your sort of meet cute and your great lie behind yeah. a romance. Yeah. It's not like it never addresses it, so it sort of saves itself from being 
poisonous in mm-hmm. that element, but it's, it would feel amiss not to mention to it. To mention that up top, because I know that some people have really found it hard to connect with this film because of that yeah. aspect. Whereas really, I'd say that's one of the two flashback levels. The main narrative strand of this film is the hand. And yeah. anyone who's seen a poster or a <laughs> promotional still from this film will see that it is almost like the thing from the Adams family yeah. just <laughs> the way it, the way it w- moves wandering around, around. Or, or maybe the hand from Evil Dead it's going into the <laughs> canon of great hand movies Caitlin would you agree yes I think the two kind of split narratives work really interestingly and the, some of the stuff that actually goes on with the hand I think is quite terrifying at times there's sort of the hand's journey to sort of be reunited with its former body it kind of takes the hand on this journey through the underground levels of Paris and into the kind of the suburbs and it's one of my favourite things about the film actually is how they map out Paris it's a film where you never see you don't see an Eiffel Tower you don't see the Arc de Triomphe you see no visual uh, landmarks of the city apart from maybe like the subway station or metro stations which are quite well known but this hand kind of navigates through the city on a very sort of low ground level and now Fell is, is sort of navigating the city on this higher you know roof level almost in lots of lots of scenes and it just creates this really beautiful narrative of like a background Paris a sort of hidden Paris that's never really allowed to be expressed which is really interesting considering that the writer also worked on Amelie which is you know it's a very like basically Tower. Is, exactly which is basically like you know chocolate box written Paris, yeah, yeah written the textbook on how to make films about Paris but the hand story yeah it's really terrifying at times it manages to be very very poignant in certain scenes there's one moment where it kind of again sounds really creepy but it kind of looks down on a baby um, (laughs) and like comes up to the cot and it yeah again that sounds very very odd but it's a very nice scene about connection and yeah I think trying to like re you know re-engage with like a world around you yeah, and sequences like it's like a survival thriller. Yes, with the rats in the in the train. In, in the cracks in the tracks of, yes. the, of the subway, yeah. where mm. there's the rats start sort of nibbling at the fingers. Yeah. It's yeah. creepy, and likewise, uh, quite horrifying sequences with pigeons in yes. the air. Uh, yes, right and towards the beginning. Yeah, this film premiered at Cannes in Critics Week. It won the top prize there. It also did really well at Annecy, which is the big animation festival, and. You, you can see that this is really pioneering animation mm. here, a, re, a real announcement of a new talent. Of course, Jeremy Clapin had made shorts beforehand. This is his first feature. It's it's fascinating to go from Frozen 2, which is the cutting edge yeah. of what all of the server farms in California can make, yeah. whereas this is the, the small European art house animation that's just as good. Yeah, it's um, got a texture to it that I was sort of craving from things like Frozen 2, just the, um, the sketchiness of all the environments, the sequences of the hand are just so, some of them are just so beautiful. Like things like maybe taking a quick rest in someone's house just to listen to someone, to listen to someone yeah. play the piano. The way the hand is sort of just barely anthropomorphized is really kind of incredible, short of just this finding very creative ways to sort of visually express any kind of, I suppose, if hands feel melancholy, uh, <laughs> any melancholy that it actually is feeling, just this really sort of impeccable visual language and just yeah. these beautiful colours as and well. And also kind of opposite to that, I think the scenes that are in black and white are just as stunning, the kind of flashbacks to Naofel's just so childhood in Morocco, um, which kind of forms part of the backstory. Some of those feel so textured and so moving. And, you know, there's just moments where you're watching a hand kind of sink into grains of sand. And it's like a feeling that is so, you know, universal and so known but this this animation just really captures that kind of softness and that texture and yeah the the light and the family that sort of their interactions when they're just driving in a car and like he's making field recordings like out the window it's just it's lovely it's, it's a very appropriately tactile film mm. just that sort of attention to details about the wind blowing through 
a microphone. Yeah. Um, just like the way of... his mother like holds a mirror in like her own hand and things like that, I think are really beautiful touches. Touches. I suppose <laughs> yeah, it has to be. It is about a hand, exactly. therefore it has to be tactile. It's a yeah. re- really fascinating film. Uh, Camberley, what scores would you give I Lost My Body? I'll go with a three. I wasn't really mm-hmm. um, not familiar with any of Clapin's work and Amelie's fine, I guess. Um, <laughs> but in terms of enjoyment, a four, I thought it was really, really surprisingly beautiful, very weird and grotesque. Just walking a very fine line between those things. Just really creative, moving stuff. And I think I'll hold out at a four. Mm-hmm. I genuinely think it's one of the year's best animated films. Brilliant. Caitlin? Yeah, I think I um, would go with three as well for anticipation. Again, I wasn't too familiar with Clapin's work. And I guess the premise, you know, when you hear that it's kind of about a severed hand exploring a city, you're like, sure, why not? So, yeah, so it was a three for anticipation. A four for enjoyment. I really, I really did enjoy the film. As I've said, like the animation is really beautiful. There's a poignancy to a lot of the narrative. The thing, as I said, the thing that really drew, drew me in was the way it navigates this city space and really kind of allows for a sort of a background story to come to the foreground and to tell an immigrant story essentially in a city that doesn't have to be all glitz and glamour. But I think, in retrospect, I would go a little bit lower. I think a three, that that relationship story did really drag it down for me. I found mm. it quite hard to engage with that because it did seem like a very unnecessary conceit and just could have been done so differently. So that I struggled to forget that this quite stalkerish um, <laughs> approach to relationship narrative. And, and also it's, it's, you know, Gabrielle, as much as there is a kind of reckoning with it at some point, she never really gets past a kind of like manic pixie dream girl mm. stage, which I think is unfortunate yeah. for a female the character. The hand gets more agency. The hand has more agency. <laughs> but I did, I did enjoy the film. Yes, yeah, so I'd say fours across the board for this one. I was very excited to see it at Cannes. Whenever I go to film festivals, I always look out and anima- look out for animations and <laughs> just seeing that still and reading the the one liner about a hand fighting its way through Paris to be reunited with its owner, mm. and it delivers on that level completely, even if there are some flaws in there. Yeah. But I do particularly like how it does strain with some ambition to make a poetic statement out of all of these flashbacks and flash mm. forwards and the hand and the body and the people in his life it does try to find something if it doesn't really find it at the end it's still quite an emotional journey along the way and probably for in retrospect just because I want to see something more from Jeremy Mm. Clapham maybe he can make Kung Fu Panda 4 maybe (laughs) who knows Frozen (laughs) 3 anyway that's I Lost My Body which is in cinemas this weekend and on Netflix from next weekend I believe the 29th yeah Yeah. Mm. so you should be able to see that in some form um, over the next two weeks and that wraps up the animation segment of this <laughs> episode. Frozen 2, I Lost My Body, both in cinemas. Let us know what you think at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolinda.com via email, or at the comments section at lblies.com slash podcast. What's next? Or should I say, who's next? It's Tommy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Back in cinemas, thanks to the BFI and their recent musical season, is this entirely unique take on rock opera from director Ken Russell. Adapted from the landmark album by The Who, Tommy follows the story of a deaf, dumb and blind boy who becomes a pinball prodigy and eventually leads his own religion. Who frontman Roger Daltrey stars in the title role, with key cameos from the likes of Jack Nicholson, Tina Turner, Eric Clapton and Elton John. Campbell, was this a first watch for you? It was a first watch for me. It was my first Ken Russell, so I'm off oh, to... Oh, wow, deep uh, end, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, in short, I'm off to a horrible start. <laughs> um, I feel like I very much caught on to how I was feeling about it in the first half hour. I stuck out as long as I possibly could. Just I was just like, maybe uh, there'll be a number that I enjoy. I suppose I liked Pinball Wizard. That was fun with um, Elton John in sort of seven foot boots but oh man wait uh, somehow they've made a rock opera where in which while being populated by a lot of musical idols it seems like no one can sing Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. everything just seems so poorly orchestrated and a lot of the time i was just thinking about how much i'd rather be watching phantom of the paradise Yes. Uh, Which this somehow feels trashier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but seemingly by accident. I appreciated the sort of psychedelic visuals. They were kind of interesting, but just this sort of constant, like, nails on a chalkboard sound of Oliver Reed (laughs) trying to string together a musical number. Uh, I I wanted to go deaf and dumb and blind (laughs) as well. That's your your poster quote from 1975 right there. I mean, I'm sure someone has said it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not not the first. It is funny, isn't it? This is a a musical where the entire film is sung. I think there's one line of dialogue in the the whole thing. So you have to sit there and watch... Oliver Reed, who can't sing. He's a musical legend. He was Fagin. Let's not... But, fa- but he didn't have a song, have a song in Oliver. True. True. So, <laughs> tricky there. We do have some comments from Twitter. For Tommy, we asked, does this rock opera hold up? Dirty Disco Sound System said, utter cobbler's people, always was. <laughs> Uncle Monty said, lol, no, it's awful. Fiddle about, shudder. Brett Cole says, seems I'm in the minority here, but I think it is fantastic. Startling images, sequences that marries with the music incredibly well. Tina Turner and Elton John providing iconic cameos too. Caitlin, a little bird tells me 
you might agree with Brett to a certain extent. I, I, yeah, to a certain extent, I do agree that Fiddle About is a horrendous <laughs> element to this film and it is incredibly disturbing and horrible. And Keith Moon, take, I feel like he takes far too much like enjoyment in playing that horrible uncle role. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where he cracks an egg into a, a pint of mm. Newcastle brown ale and it made me want to throw up. But no, I think this is a really bonkers film, but there is something so trashy and are just amazing about the visuals and the kind of the whole yeah just the whole opera of it mm-hmm. that I think is really fun and I was totally engaged throughout I was vaguely familiar with the, with the music I think the first kind of recording of the album is slightly different to the film that Ken Russell mm-hmm. then kind of wrote and so I was slightly familiar with the music and obviously Pimble Wizard is a classic song and I lo- love The Who so I was very excited this was the first time I'd watched it but I was really excited to see it and was just completely you know like taken aback by some of the the scene constructions and the costumes and the the lights and the sort of the landscapes and Roger Daltrey like climbing up these like mountain sides and dancing in waterfalls and mm-hmm. it's it's so, totally totally mad but there is something really fun and great about it I think um, and it's totally surreal and just bonkers but I find I think that I think there's something just worthwhile in that you know it's it's just fun it's, I think from the production design standpoint and this yeah. is why it's great to see this in the context of the BFI musical season yes. to see this out of context I would only bring to this film my love of the original album right, and yeah. let's go into dad rock corner for a second <laughs> I was into dad rock before I was a dad <laughs> I think that this is an absolutely terrible version of that album right, I think yeah. that and it's not all Ken Russell's fault. He had no interest in rock music. He mm. only wanted to see it as this outsized opera. Mm. Pete Townsend, the major creative force behind the Who, was a very different musician in 1975 than he was in 1969. The main thing being he discovered synthesizers. <laughs> so the music in the the film sounds atrocious, whereas <laughs> the impetus behind Tommy, the album in 1969, was they wanted to keep it contained in terms of the arrangements so it could be something they could play live so it's only that key bass drums guitar with a bit of french horn a bit of keyboards acoustics every now and then and that 69 album sounds incredible now and it doesn't work as a concept album no the story doesn't work there are songs that are there as jokes so it's kind of a bizarre concept in the first you know right anyway so yeah the fact that then I, i feel like the film like ken russell's film kind of takes that and blows it out of proportion in yeah. so many ways and yeah obviously the production design completely complements that and makes it this this really grand and totally wild film but I think there's something in the kind of colours and textures that it, re- it feels like such an artefact of that time and I think that's something that I find quite fascinating about it is seeing how so many different things had influenced that and have since been influenced by all that imagery and the the, the look of the time that there's something really kind of yeah it's like a time capsule I think it's mm. really fascinating and the other tough thing is you have one of the great rock and roll vocalists of all time Roger Daltrey mm. who, who is an he was, he's a vision yes, in yeah. this film he's topless <laughs> he was ripped at all times <laughs> he is so ripped <laughs> But you have one of the great rock vocalists who doesn't yeah. sing for an hour and five minutes yeah. um, at all because he's a, the deaf, dumb and blind boy. Yeah. The great thing about Tommy, the, the the album, is that he does all nearly all of the singing voices. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, you do kind of build up to that point at the end and then I suppose it ties in with the, you know, the progression to him becoming this cult figure and mm-hmm. this cult leader, which is, I think, where the film does lose it, <laughs> to be honest. Everything before that, I think, is much more interesting than 
him kind of, you know, raising to this cult status. But I think maybe it does have some interesting things to say about the cult of celebrity mm-hmm. and, you know, the rise of hysteria amongst fans and, and those kinds of, you know, musical fan clubs and scenes and things like that. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff to draw out there. But yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it does build up to Roger Daltrey having this big kind of finale moment where he gets to be the, the voice of the film again. Um, but I think some of the cameos before he gets to, you know, kind of take centre stage are really amazing. Like, Tina Turner is fantastic. <laughs> scary she's she? scary but it's a great sequence I think it's really wild and even Anne Margret mm-hmm. who plays his mother only two years older than Roger Dalton <laughs> she's wild in this film her eyes are completely totally bonkers and if it reveals anything about how the Hollywood industry has changed mm. um, that was an Oscar nominated performance wow really mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean <laughs> she I, throws herself into it and of course does, there's yeah. that central sequence where she has her nervous breakdown in front of the telly yeah. and she's bathing in I guess it's is it Nutella it's and beans, ba- ba- beans <laughs> and, and all sorts oh, yeah it's, that's a very committed performance she is one of the better singers or the read yes. less so what do you think of the other cameos I like Jack Nicholson yeah. um, I think it's fun his singing voice is not too bad but he it feels like he's sort of more speaking mm-hmm. some of the lines rather than singing um, and obviously the Elton John moment is, you know, probably the kind of like the pinnacle of that film. His version of Pimble Wizard is not my favourite, mm-hmm. but I think the that is, again, kind of like an artefact of him in that time, in that moment, the costume, the, you know, the makeup, the, the glasses, everything about that feels so so glitzy and just kind of like stunning to watch. So yeah, I, I did like Elton John in, in this. I think also the, the, the tricky thing with most of those cameos is that I'll be corrected if I'm wrong on this, but I think Elton John's the only cameo where the star is in the ascendant. Mm. Uh, Eric Clapton was at a tricky phase yeah. in his career where he's just kicked his heroin habit and just isn't really doing anything yeah, in yeah. That. And when he does um, Eyesight to the Blind. And Tina Turner as well is in that sort of hinterland between her 60s hits with Ike and then her mm. 80s private dancer comeback. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a funny one where you hear about who could have been in this film. Mick Jagger, they tried to get. Stevie wanted, Wonder, I read as well. He wanted to be the pinball yeah, wizard. Uh, David insane. Bowie was meant to be the acid queen. So yeah, that would have made perfect sense. So you, yeah. you could see how if you if they got everybody they wanted circa mm. 1975, it could have been really a star-studded thing. Mm. As it is, I think only Elton John's Pinball Wizard is the song that could stand yes. separate from this film. Yes, yeah. And it's such a shame because I think that while The Who would make better concept albums later in their career. The album they'd make directly after Tommy, mm. who's next, in terms of their big belter songs, probably their best. Yeah, Tommy has some great melodies. I think so too. Throughout. I think there's some refrains throughout that are really memorable, and you know, would wouldn't be out, of, wouldn't feel out of place in one of their bigger anthems, or you know, the songs that they're most remembered for. But yeah, you know, clearly, Pimble Wizard is the standout from mm-hmm. from this, and the sequence in the film is, I think, the best. Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with it now. I yeah. think it's, yeah, it's just... Have you seen me in. many other Ken Russell films? I've not. I was trying to remember, like, go back through and see which ones I thought I'd seen, but... So, he's always been a sort of blind spot for me. Mm. Um, I've kept The Devils as a rainy day film. Right. I will watch it someday. The only other film of his I've seen is Listomania, which I think he makes almost okay. directly after this with Roger Daltrey as Franz Liszt. Okay, maybe um, I'll add that to... Which is crazier. There's a sequence right. where he, uh, Roger Daltrey is riding a, I think it's like, nine-foot prosthetic penis. <laughs> Great, it's on the list. It's <laughs> <laughs> on your list. Anyway, that is Tommy, which has been re-released as part of the BFI musical season. A really great season. Check it out. There's, they're, they're doing the whole span mm-hmm. of musicals. It's been real, a real treat seeing what they've been covering. And that's about all we have time for this week. Let us know what you think about Tommy, I Lost My Body, or Frozen 2 are the usual channels. Truth Movies on Twitter, truthmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comment section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Next week we have a bumper episode. 
three new releases, Knives Out, Atlantics, The Nightingale, and in Film Club, this Stanley Kubrick masterpiece, Eyes Wide Shut. I'd hear nothing to the contrary about that. But I won't be here. I'll be in Tokyo, so I'll leave you in the capable hands of Beth Webb. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks so much. Campbell unfortunately, had to dash out a little early, but thank you to Campbell I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.